don't get a TC until you understand the contract yourself. Boom! And I am so grateful that it took me that long to get a TC because anytime anyone has a contractual question, Oh, you know, page in line. I know page in line, and they laugh at me. Is that 167? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Michael Conrad here with the Business of Homes podcast. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us again. We are so, so thankful to be bringing you amazing stories of the world of real estate and the business behind it all that fuels it. Uh, Today, we have a wonderful realtor and a friend of mine, Katie Morrell, who is a passionate and committed realtor in this community in Middle Tennessee, um, as well as an amazing businesswoman. And I'm hoping to dig in to some of her secrets and some of her experiences over a career that has taken place in a couple different areas, uh, but has found some really deep roots here in Middle Tennessee. Welcome, Katie. This market temperature always makes us think about where we've come, where we've come from. Because when you feel like the road ahead of you is particularly unknown, right? I mean, like in in contrast to this, of course, you know, when you're going up and to the right and everything is just like banging and you're just doing great, you're not thinking about where you're going. You're just holding on to the dragon or whatever it is. Right. Um, But particularly in moments where there is uncertainty ahead of us, at least for me, I look backwards and I think to myself, where, where did I come from? How did I get here? And in doing so, does that help me get a better compass bearing for where I'm going to be going? Because maybe I'm feeling a little lost right now. So where did you come from? How did you get here? And how has your compass bearing changed over time? So I'm from a small town called Maryville, Tennessee. Born and raised there, went to the University of Tennessee, and I met my husband there. We moved actually to Nashville um, in 2000, 2001, and he was doing some singer-songwriter things. And we both decided, I was 22 at the time, he was 27, that um, we were going to get sober. 22. I just, you know, you shouldn't, you really shouldn't start drinking until you're 21. That's right. So anyway, um, with his music background and singer songwriter, we felt like that probably wasn't conducive to sobriety. So we decided to move to his hometown in Bristol, Tennessee, which is a teeny tiny town, uh, part of the Tri-Cities of the Northeast Tip. And uh, we moved back there because he had bought a convenience store at the age of 18 with his father. Isn't That's that amazing. funny? That's yeah. so cool. Cedar Creek Market. I love Shout that. out to the best, world's best hot dog. <laughs> um, and so we thought we'll move back, you know, start working at the convenience store, kind of building that business and some of his commercial real estate that he had surrounding the convenience store. And um, we bought our first home, and I fell in love with every single bit of that process. Mm. I loved um, the whole process of purchasing the home. Uh, The home was built in 1919 and we renovated it from top to bottom. And I loved that entire process. Um, And from there, we decided to jump into doing a development that was one of the greatest lessons of my 
career. Holy cow, that's quite the leap. Yeah, big leap. Big leap. New, wait, new into real estate. New into real estate and decided to develop 54 townhomes. As one does. <laughs> no, a crazy person <laughs> with no experience and no fear. You know, I was too young to have any fear in doing it. But huge lesson. We started that process, I think, in 2006. And developing is, you know, a very long, arduous process. You have so many things that need to be met with codes, city, um, excavating, site plans, all these things that I had never, I mean, I'd renovated a home. Right, but the things you don't think about, the hidden things. The hidden things, the rock, you know, and the amount of money you have to spend on excavating that rock. Um, So we did this in three phases and, you know, did okay, 2008 happened. Mm. And so we shifted from actually selling the townhomes to renting the townhomes, which, you know, would have been beautiful had it all worked out. But um, last phase, the last eight townhomes, the excavators did not compact the dirt well enough. And so the garages fell in eight inches. Oh, my God. And when that happens, you can't get a UNO or a CO. And so therefore you can't sell them nor can you rent them, and you're still paying a note on all the other 50 units that you have built. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a bad position to be in. A little more Michael. expenses than revenue. A little bit, little bit more expenses. So, what um, do you do? Jackhammer everything out and recompact no, you, and try again? You, you get into a lawsuit with the excavator. Oh, goodness. Who won't take responsibility, even though you can see it there, yeah. you know. The, the garage garages have fallen witness. in. <laughs> yeah. But lawsuits take time. Mm. And, and money. And we did not have time. So um, we had to file a Chapter 11 um, on that particular project. Oof, right out the gate. Well, not exactly right out the gate because it had taken a long time to get it, you know, to that point. Right. But um, I think it was one of the best lessons in my career to learn. And um, it taught me so much and I learned so much and I will never do a project of that size ever again. Mm. Why was it so helpful? I think because my ego led me to do something that I wasn't qualified to do. Mm. And just learning that things take time and instead of, you know, jumping into something without having the knowledge and um, the time spent and knowing how to do something of that magnitude, just led me to the place I am now where I'm a lot more patient. And, you know, selling one house at a time is okay with me now. Yeah, the um, the failure is such a great teacher. It is. And, you know, generally speaking, our society, you know, particularly real estate within the last 15 years, has seen immeasurably much less failure. Mm-hmm. And so that teacher has not been, that class has not been in session mm-hmm. for a lot of folk. Teaching other people, being able to create this team and give people the playbook where they don't have to make so many mistakes. You know, they can kind of 
skip over the mistakes that I made and I can teach them how to do something well and then watch them succeed is very rewarding. This concept of living through a certain amount of life experience, Mm -hmm. trying to gather these uh, pearls of wisdom up and then looking towards others that you can help. Mm-hmm. I mean, this formula feels very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably marked my most recent years as an entrepreneur, but there's this complicated part of the puzzle that I don't think I fully realized. And that is not everyone has ears to hear mm-hmm. those cautionary tales and lessons. True. Sometimes, probably even people like me, sometimes people need to go through their own lessons to really learn. And now I'm at a place where I'm asking myself, how do I better package those life lessons and those experiences in such a way where others may benefit to a greater extent? Mm -hmm. And I haven't figured it out yet. Still working on it. But I do start to think that this is the core of what leadership development looks like when you've been an entrepreneur for, you know, an amount of certain amount of time and found some success. This is what leadership development looks like is asking more questions born out of that experience, born out of those pearls of wisdom so that they, whoever they is, may gain the benefit of finding the answers themselves rather than solely being fed the answers. And if anyone else out there listening has children, I'm sure you will know that this also comes to bear at home, you mm-hmm. know, where you're trying to impart to your kids, don't make the same mistakes I did. Exactly. Um, and that, you know, only goes well half the time or less. So going back to your story, so you go through this whole development and this, you know, Perhaps not failure. Well, if you, um, it was list- a failure. Well, it was a failure, but lessons were learned, and you know we rose above it and became what we are today. So, Josh Ellis um, joined us on the podcast a while ago and talked about this concept that failure is not a destination, mm-hmm. but that it is an active element of resistance that sometimes not only is a great teacher but allows you to create perseverance and character to push through. And so, I I think sometimes when I start to say the word failure, I want to make sure I'm qualifying Mm -hmm. that no, it's not a place I stopped Mm. or a place you stopped No, that failure was just a waypoint, Mm -hmm. you know, along the way. But yes, perhaps uh, a failure by some measures, Um, but you didn't stop because you're here today. That's right. So what took place after that? How did you transform? We were doing so many things like coinciding with that development. I had a couple restaurants, Mellow Mushrooms in the Tri-Cities at the time. I started opening a yoga studio at the time. Those things go together so well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then I had my um, real estate firm. So there was just, I was spinning a lot of plates. Totally. You know? And so another thing that I learned through that process was I need to spin less plates Mm. and spin one very well. And so I sold, we sold the Mellow Mushrooms, we sold the yoga studio. And then when we came here, we focused solely on real estate. And I think that has been one of the secret ingredients to my success here is focusing on one thing that I, that I do well and not trying to do so many things. 
someone said to me recently that growth creates complication mm-hmm. and complication is the main hurdle for sustainable growth. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of cycle that one enters into, you know, many entrepreneurs listening here will know, oh my gosh, I've, I've gotten some success. We are bigger. We offer more services. I have a wider reach. I serve a greater audience, whatever it is. The customization, the complication, it creeps in so easily. And then when you begin to try to focus on all that, it just pulls your focus from everything specifically. And so you're sort of blurry out of focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's good. It's so important and, and a great encouragement to listeners here that that focus on, uh-oh, the one thing, Gary mm-hmm. Keller is the one thing, mm-hmm. the one thing that is really fueling you and offering you a chance to sort of raise the bar of quality. Mm-hmm. So what did that look like? Because did you keep the firm in East Tennessee no. as well? No. How did you divest of that? I sold it to my partner. Hmm. I had a partner who was the broker who actually it was a very difficult partnership, if I'm being totally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very hard on me. Hmm. And it was the best thing for me. She made me into a great agent. I mean, she was like white on rice with me, you know, down to my voicemail. She would listen to my voicemail and like critique my voicemail. Very detail-oriented. Yeah, I mean, and at the time I hated it and I felt like she was picking on me. And really in reality she was, but she didn't know that she was fine-tuning me. And making me a really good agent. In fact, when I moved here, I sent her a thank you note. But divesting of that, that's an incredible lesson learned to acquire and to divest. I mean, mm-hmm. these are things that um, are incredibly complicated and fraught with all sorts of difficulty and emotions and humanity and that kind of thing. And, and you managed to do both of those things in mm-hmm. a, you know, less than 10 year period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were moderately free to sort of uh, set sail for mm-hmm. for whatever. When you showed up in Nashville, mm-hmm. started selling real estate, getting to know this market better, mm-hmm. did you already have the seed of the idea to build the team or did no. that come no. later? I'd never wanted to do a team. No. I showed up just thinking I'm going to sell real estate and um, you know, I'd been doing it long enough. I didn't have to recreate the wheel. I knew what to do. And so I just put my head down and, you know, just grinded it out, my husband and I. I mean, it was open houses and cold calling. It was totally different from my business in the Tri-Cities. The Tri-Cities, I'd been there long enough. I was entrenched enough into the community. My phone rang. I moved to Nashville. No phone was ringing. Nobody knew you. Nobody knew me. So it was, you know, jumping in, being at the office every day. Whose open house can I sit at? Put me anywhere. Yeah. I will show up. I will be there. And um, we bought some leads from this company called Boomtown. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a lead generation company. They give you a website and then you pay advertising dollars for pay-per-click and then it drives leads to that website and then you're calling strangers trying to sell them homes. Yeah, that's hard. (laughs) It was so hard. Um, but our first year, we ended up selling $13 million and um, it was fun. It was like learning the business 
in a whole different way. I didn't realize how lazy I was as an agent before I moved to Nashville. Well, you don't realize how deep the relationships go until they're not there, right? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's been really fun, like building all of these new relationships and honing my craft in a different way. And I feel like I'm so much better here than I was there. Well, you have the benefit of kind of having to work for it to some extent. Yeah. You know, which I think is is another important lesson that's been, I don't know if this is entirely true, but it has been less present in recent history than, you know, in the past. Because when there's just a wide swath of people ready to buy because the interest rates are so low and blah, 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 like, I don't know more gold nuggets lying on the ground. You know, if you have to go dig it out of the ground by blood, sweat, and tears, it's a little more complicated. It's a little more fun, though. I like the challenge of it. So 2017, move here in August, and then I get a call from one of my friends in October um, who was the CEO of a company called Fraport, and it's a German-based company that um, oversees all the concessions and retail development in airports. And he called me, we met in October, and he said, you know, Katie, I'm trying to win the RFP. I'm the underdog. I'm up against Host, Delaware North, and I really would like to hire you to help me win this RFP, get some LOIs from the local businesses, and uh, hopefully win the bid for the Nashville airport. And I looked at him like he had three eyes, and I said, you know, Ben, I just moved here. I don't know anybody. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to help you do that. And he's like, yeah, you will. And I said, okay. So we ended up just eating our way through the city, going to all the different um, retailers and got 50 LOIs in six weeks and we won the bid. It was the best experience meeting all of the people that have created the city. Mm -hmm. You know, the Max Goldbergs, the uh, Tom Morales's, the Judith Brights, all the people that have created all these things that we get to enjoy. Um, and it helped my business tremendously. No, you were so, connecting. So they hired me as director of operations over all the concession and retail at BNA. And I did that for about a year and hated it <laughs> and thought, I've got to go back to real estate just solely. My husband was handling most of our real estate for that time. So mm. I told Ben when I took the job, I said, if I do this, and I love it. I'll stay. But if I don't, then I'll go back to real estate. And it was so stressful that the left side of my face and my arm went numb. And I had to go get an MRI. And, you know, I thought I had a brain tumor. And he oh, was gosh. like, no, you have acute anxiety. And so um, I thought, well, it's not worth dying over the airport. So I went back to real estate. And I'm so <laughs> glad I did. Ugh. Not worth dying over the airport. No. <laughs> It was that, that was the inflection point going back to real estate. That's when you started to build the, the team. team. Hey everyone, it's Jake, director for the Business of Homes podcast. I hope you've been enjoying today's episode, starting with Katie's quick dive into a townhome development, creating a playbook so Katie's team doesn't experience the same mistakes and the path Katie went on before creating her team. When we return, Michael and Katie dive into the structure of her team, the successful order in which to hire roles, 
and the dire importance of the contract. You don't want to miss it. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Business of Homes Pod, where you can interact with us and see some great bite-sized pieces from all of our episodes. For you listeners out there, did you know our entire podcast are filmed and are on our YouTube channel? Check it out next time you want to see our amazing guests tell their stories. And are you currently watching this episode in video format? Don't forget to follow us in your preferred audio streaming service to take us with you on the go. Lastly, do you have any feedback or want to suggest someone for the show? Email us at thebusinessofhomespodcast at gmail.com. Please enjoy the rest of today's episode with Katie Morell. Let's get back to it. My first cousin said, I've got a friend who wants to get into real estate. And do you think she could come in and talk to you? And I was like, yeah, sure. Send her in. And then she called me about two days later and she goes, you know, more now that I think about it, what if I came and talked to you about real estate? And I said, sure, you know, come in, we'll talk. And she was my first hire. Funny. Mm-hmm. She's still with me. She just became a senior agent. So that's exciting. And then my best friend decided to get her license. And then my husband's best friend. You should never hire family Uh-oh. or friends. Let me just tell you, but this luckily has worked out for me. But when I was talking to Aaron Kruger and Jesse Scarlotta and Sarah Evers, they're like, do not hire family, do not hire friends. And of course, that's what that's what you did. What I did, but it worked out. But it works for some. It works for some. That's good. And so, yeah, now we're a team of thirteen, and it's um, I've never interviewed anyone. I've never put out we're hiring. You know, it just is all kind of organically. Yeah, come together. Happened. So, do you guys structure in such a way where you're delegating different duties so that it's sort of um, all parts lead to the whole, or is it? Um, sort of a safe harbor for people to be sort of totally operating their own uh, sphere under you? We we have three different positions. So you can be a referral agent, which means you just send your business to us. You hand us the baton and we close the deal. I have hmm. two referral agents on the team. And <clears throat> then we have a buyer's agent, which everyone starts out as a buyer's agent. They come, they have to follow a 30, 60, 90-day game plan. They have to jump through these hoops basically to become the buyer's agent. And then they're doing a minimum of 50 phone calls a week, five face-to-faces, sending out three social media posts, you know, doing the handwritten letters and the email to their sphere. And then we have a senior agent role, which once you've been on the team for three years, you can become a senior agent and then you're commission structure changes and then you're helping coach the other buyer's agents Mm -hmm. and then we have a senior lead role where you can build your own team underneath me but you're coaching your own team and is that intended to create like a referral base under these sort of little micro teams concept it's for retention um like my team feels like my family Hmm. and um you know, it's giving someone more responsibility, plus they get a better commission structure, plus they're creating their own team. Mm-hmm. And I only have so much bandwidth. It's just what we've created and it seems to work and it gives people a goal. You know, they start as a buyer agent, then they become a senior agent and then they become a senior lead. And that senior lead is kind of the pinnacle role on the team. Is this something where you're pushing yourself more into a non-production role where you're coaching and managing? Is that the sort of eventual place that you're going towards? 
I think so. I mean, I will always handle certain clients, you know, people who have been with me from the beginning of time. But I'm hoping to train these people where they will be even better than I am. That is the dream, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a scary component to to for to be different in word than in deed. You know, you you bring people in to your world and you invite them into your team and you say, I want you to be better than me. But then if they start to, um, you know, express independent thought or, you know, start to go in maybe slightly different directions than maybe you would choose, that's where the rubber meets the road, where you really have to decide, am I going to be able to release control or even vision potentially so that they can make decisions because it's through those decisions and through that experience that they even might have the opportunity to continue to progress and progress mm -hmm. and progress. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that's a that's a very difficult thing. I, I find that difficult at mm -hmm. the very least. Mm -hmm. It is difficult, but I'm always open to learning. And I know I'm never the smartest person in the room. And I try to surround myself with smarter people who can teach me. You know, I always love learning. I think that's why I've liked doing so many different things and juggling so many different plates. Um, so I'm always open to, you know, even my team members teaching me things. That is um, uh, something I'm sure we've talked about here and, and you've heard it, and that is we are the measurement of the five people we surround ourselves mm -hmm. with. And um, there are more sort of, uh, I think, two-dimensional ways to think about that old adage. I, I think the, um, the way we treat others, um, the way we interact with the people around us, mm -hmm. um, and the way we push ourselves to develop, you know, better and better habits or better and better, you know, understanding of the world, we're going to be the average of those people. Are mm -hmm. these people continuing to educate themselves, treating others with kindness? That's how we measure. And so it's a good, it's a good encouragement to make sure that the people on your team that you're spending the most time with, mm -hmm. um, are high aptitude, high executing, mm -hmm. you know, folk with, with great skills to, to blend in. Mm -hmm. Um, what has been one of the most difficult parts of the team atmosphere for you over the last handful of years? It's managing expectations. So I feel like if you have the expectations in black and white, you know, on your agreements before you even bring somebody on, that's probably the most important thing. And um, just your bandwidth, managing your bandwidth um, and sticking to your boundaries with people. We meet twice a week. We meet on Mondays and Thursdays from 930 to 1130. We have a one-on-one -on -one every month. I just had my one-on-ones today before I got here. Mm. Um, with each team member. With each team member. And then eating lunch with a, a different team member every Wednesday so they have that one-on-one -on -one time with me. Um, but also letting them know when I go on vacation, you need to be talking to one of the senior agents or Addison my director of operations, mm. which by the way, was the best hire I ever made. Yeah. That, that continues to crop up when talking about team building is that when you are finding the right operations person, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it has the largest ripple effect over time. It's incredible. And it, it can be difficult for newer or smaller, younger entrepreneurs to think that the first person I need to be bringing in is operations, not someone who's going to be taking field-related tasks off me. You know, a lot of agents are thinking, oh, I need a showing specialist because I need to stop doing the showings because that's, that's like a field, taking up my physical time. 
or I need a contract to close, you know, because I need someone handling my paperwork so I can be doing less paperwork. But it was advised to me. I'm not sure I exactly followed suit, but the same thing. An operations person can be an invaluable and um, have the largest effect on your business because, and it's very obvious to see in retrospect, they take things off you. Mm-hmm. And when you are building something, a structure underneath yourself, building a business, really, um, the least number of like action items that are your responsibility gives you the maximum opportunity and effect to grow or strengthen the business. Mm -hmm. And so the business is inversely strong or inversely growing based on how much you yourself are in the trenches. And I made that mistake. I did not hire a director of operations first. I and, didn't either. And Aaron and Sarah and Jesse, ladies that I look up to in this business who have teams, very solid teams, all told me to do it. Again, don't hire family, friends. Hire the director of operations first, of course. Hard-headed. Didn't listen. But I did get the memo, and then I did hire Addison, and it was the best thing I ever did. Um, I'm nerdy in a way where I love contracts and... I never had a TC until like three years ago, um, which is crazy yeah. now that I look back through my career. But I hired the <clears> TC <throat> first and then Addison and life-changing. And I can't believe how much we've grown because of those two things. So this is something that I feel like comes up a lot among agents in the current conversation. I, I think you go to a, a little seminar, conference, or even listen to a podcast and one of the things you'll hear, heck, I think we've said it here, hire a TC, hire a TC, hire a TC. It's, a, it's an easy way to offload or trade time. However, you are wise to point out that hiring a TC is really almost sort of like two different things. There is a detail orientation that is required as part of contracts. But there's also a time component. It literally takes you time to read through and or annotate or amend or send or communicate or whatever. And so if you are someone who is, and I'm speaking broadly about detail orientation over here, but if you're someone who enjoys the nerdy side of contract language, which I love the law in sort of a, <laughs> a an outsider, not actual attorney sort of way. Yeah. Um, I love the law, I love contracts. And so, yeah, legal language and the nuance of language and how it can beautiful and can communicate complicated things. That's yeah, fascinating. But that's not everybody, how everybody's brain thinks. And so the advice to get a TC is both very good advice and dangerous advice. Yeah, don't get a TC until you understand the contract yourself. Period. Boom, yes. And, so, and I am so grateful that it took me that long to get a TC because anytime anyone has a contractual question. Oh, you know, page in line. I yeah, know yeah. page in line and they mm -hmm. laugh at me. You yeah. know, they act like I'm a big contractor. Is that 167? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Page two, you know. But um, yeah, don't get a TC until you actually under the, understand the contract yourself. Because I have had agents that I've worked with that have gotten TCs prematurely and they don't know the contract. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think a sort of a, a dangerous or harsh reality of real estate is that the real estate professional is kind of like a para-professional of many different categories. You're sort of a 
para-legal person, sort of a para-psychologist person sometimes, para-counselors, um, para-contractors. You know, you're sort of a, uh, a ghosty version of all of these professionals because you have to have a little bit of knowledge about all these skills. But I would argue that it is probably contracts and the legal side of the negotiation of two parties to sell a home that is that looms in importance and certainly complication for today's real estate agent, especially in Tennessee, where we're not an escrow state, we're a title state, where there's not necessarily an attorney looking over your shoulder. There may only be a compliance officer at your brokerage. And so who is watching the watchman, you know, situation here? And so, yeah, I, I would argue that... Um, more time. I'm sure nobody actually wants to do this. I'm probably going to get booed uh, from listeners here, but nobody wants to go to more contracts class because those are snooze fests, right? Yeah, but, but you should. That is your. That is the whole point of our job. But yes, this this para legal, and I know that like the NAR people listening in the cloud are probably like, that's not what we do. But like the para legal component of contract negotiation and contract writing and contract amending is is so important. Sometimes in my world, we remind the real estate professionals that we interact with, the language you write specifically into amendments um, is so important. And you have to be very conscious that any words that are not pre-typed on that TAR contract and that you write becomes legally binding language. Exactly. And that the nuance of a sentence structure Verbs or nouns missing or past or present tense or even punctuation can honestly, I, I know we're not like adjudicating this in court or anything like this, but it can be very important. And oh, the wrong sticky or problematic seller or buyer mm -hmm. can get very hung up on these details. And mm -hmm. so it is beholden on all of us in the real estate world to be probably a little more intense than is normal about that part mm -hmm. when you write and put pen to paper on your own words into the contract. Yep. Whether exactly. it's business days on that tiny little field that only allows numbers or it's the special steps you need to have, you know, your language. And that's why having a team is important. Oh my gosh. A team with layers of it's connection. So you got this team leader who has another team leader who has a senior lead, like who has a broker because even your team hangs its license under a broker. And so those layers of connection is, is so, so important. And a good exhortation and encouragement to all of our young listeners here who wanted to get into real estate, do not ignore the importance of the contract. No, do not. And, you know, be talking to people, learning, going over the contract, you know, with people who actually know the contract constantly. I mean, our team, you know, we're constantly going over contracts. Or where this issue came up, how could have it have been done better? Yeah. You know. Some of the agents that I've worked with in the past um, who I think are most successful at this, they convert the contract, in people's minds that is, from being a stack of paper with sticky arrows, which is I think what a lot of people generally think of it as. I can't understand the language. It's too complicated. It's too vast. All I need to do is put pen to paper where the stickies are. The best agents convert the whole concept of the contract into um, situational decisions yes. or stories yes. or moments of 
uh, discussion where each section is sort of like a little episode Mm -hmm. where you're fleshing out past experience or you're highlighting through an educational moment the importance of X, Y, or C decisions. If you do this, this Mm -hmm. is what happens. If Mm -hmm. you do and do this, this other thing happens. And so when you start to convert the contract for your buyers, for your sellers, um, into more of a narrative, and you pull it away (laughs) from the legal language, even though we just discussed its Mm -hmm. importance, for the client at least, that's where I think you really find like magic moments. Agreed. Role play is important. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that can be very difficult because we're all subject to not reading the terms and conditions. We're all subject to um, having to look over some insurance document and saying, nope, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to read it. We're all subject to that. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be no surprise that our buyers and our sellers struggle with this. Mm -hmm. It's not their daily job. And we, it must be holding upon us. We must do it for them to some extent, the interpretation piece Mm -hmm. at the very least. I think another important thing is making sure that you're putting calendar invites on your clients' calendars of the important days Mm. within the contract, Mm. you know, so they can't say, I didn't know about this or... It's important that you're informing every yeah. one of the dates at all times. Yeah. A years ago, I saw an agent had this lovely infographic that was like a, almost looked like a shoots and ladders board. Mm-hmm. It was some sort of little timeline with flags indicating important, you know, pieces of mm-hmm. the larger timeline. And they were walking their clients through at the very earliest part of the process before contracts were even written saying, let me make sure I'm mapping out the forest mm-hmm. that we're about to get into so that we don't miss the forest due to the trees or whatever the right. saying is. And so that visualization in a world where we're probably more accustomed to consuming 30-second videos mm-hmm. than actual blocks of information, mm-hmm. any social media posts, any videos, any takeaway, PDFs, infographics, I don't know what it is. Any of that is going to pay for itself in spades with your customers because we live in such a short attention span, hyper visual world now. And so this, again, yet another reason why a team can be so, so beneficial because let those that have walked before you and know this Mm -hmm. and may have already created these things help you help you Mm -hmm. on your journey. We've created a seller and buyer guide you know, marketing collateral that we take anytime we meet with a buyer or a seller yeah. and it gives them the playbook of what's going to happen. The playbook. The playbook. Yeah. yeah. And it prepares people for what they're getting into, you know, because people just don't understand all the steps. If someone at Cork and Reverie hasn't already come up with literally like a Titans-esque feel playbook thing, <laughs> I think that's a missed marketing opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. But, um, this team that you're building, it doesn't assume that anyone stays in the same spot. Correct. And I love that about you because I think as we try to push this conversation on this podcast more towards the business and the entrepreneurial side of real estate, we may also fall into the trappings of business sometimes though. Well, let me get my organizational structure. Let me write it onto a piece of paper or onto PowerPoint or whatever. And let me think about these boxes as like Legos that I'm building an empire. But the people aren't Legos. They, the Legos don't stay in the spots. 
And one of the journeys that I've been on, and it sounds like you've been on, is creating pathways. Not spots, pathways. Places for people to occupy for short periods of time. We live in a world now where people are very comfortable bouncing from one job to the next. And so if I know that that is a place of comfort for them, I have to give them opportunities internally where they can move from one skill to the next or one job to the next, never having left the safety of the umbrella. Correct. And the organization. And so that is way more complicated than I just made it sound because people have different ideas of what that looks like. But the way that you've started to sculpt a way for people to progress. Tell me a little bit more about that. I, I, you know, did my little stint at the airport and I quickly realized it was the only time I'd been in corporate America. Mm. I hated a salary. You have a ceiling with that. Like this is all the money you're going to give me. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's why I love real estate so much. There's no ceiling in it, you know? And so it was important to me to create that same thing on the team. There's no ceiling for my agents. You know, they can be as successful as they want. All they have to do, or, you know, not that successful, you know, if they don't want to be. They it's have beholden a, upon them. That's a beholden. Yeah, it's beholden upon them. They have a minimum to meet. Whatever you do after that minimum, you know, I'm going to cheerlead you the whole way and I'm going to be there to help you the whole way. But I didn't want there to be a ceiling. And I love having different people that specialize in different things. So, you know, I yes. have one agent on my team who specializes in short-term rentals. She actually gives, does permitting for short-term rentals. Love that. You know, and keeping up with all of those different rules and regulations is almost amazing. impossible. So having that on my team, having access to that is very valuable to me, you know, having someone who lives in East Nashville, knows it, lives it, breathes it, eats at all the restaurants, you know, super important. Somebody who just specializes in Green Hills, someone who specializes in Brentwood, Franklin, knowing all the different pockets and mm. being able to put, you know, the right client with the right agent is um, important. Yeah. I mean, you'll hear me say this from time to time. It's no secret. I think what you are trying to build, and there are others too doing it, is the future. This multifaceted machine where people are thriving and having opportunity like we just talked about, but really bringing a level of specialization that not only serves the client, but serves your little micro community internally. As you're bringing in new members, they are benefiting from the multitude of skills that are on full view. And they themselves can begin to fit into different categories or collect all, collect them all, collect all the skills. And so the future of real estate is very unknown currently with all of the goings on, both market and legal. And so I don't know what the future holds, but I, I do start to know that the conversation amongst some of the who I consider some of the best agents is more about creating extremely strong teams, extremely high level of knowledge and skill sets at a relatively early experience level. I think the, the general private sector social bar of like, if you're fresh in real estate, you no longer have an excuse to sort of just be a 
a la la frou frou, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, no. There's information around you. It's there's too coaching. It's very competitive, mm-hmm. and I, competitive. I'm glad for that. Um, and so I think the brokerage of the future, which Charlie Peterson and I on a past episode talked extensively about, how the brokerage model is massively in upheaval right now, at the biggest level, brokerage, and so it's going to be probably looking a lot more like teams like you creating tiered structures where people can thrive on smaller teams within larger teams, within a larger format. They can gain knowledge. They can increase skills. They can specialize. They can fall back on the resources of the greater whole. And shocker, this is what society is supposed to look like mm-hmm. in, its, in its most beautiful, purest form. I think also for the client, it's a big benefit because, you know, from a listing perspective, it's not just one agent pushing your product out. You know, right. I've got 13 people on my team that are pushing out uh, their beautiful home on Facebook, on Instagram, right. um, sending out 13 different spheres of influence emails, you know. So I don't know. I just think for your client, you're servicing them in even a better way than I could before because I have 13 people who are. <laughs> It starts to get back to the old rainmaking mm-hmm. that kind of isn't around anymore. Rainmaking kind of before the advent of social media mm-hmm. where, you know, brokerages would put listing agents and buyer's agents together in a room and say, discuss. Yeah. And rainmaking was the idea that those leads were falling into the laps of the proper people. And, you know, we now have sort of commoditized that in some way in such that well, I'm on my own. I can just post it all over social media and everyone and their mother will know about it. Well, yeah, sort of. But too small, <laughs> it's a real three-bear situation. Too small, maybe not enough reach. Too big, too convoluted. Mm-hmm. But there's a middle ground that seems to be a real place of opportunity. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're putting puzzles together every Monday and Thursday. You know, actual puzzles. No, but like okay. I've got, I've got a buyer that you know is between five hundred. I was really hoping you were putting together actual puzzles. <laughs> I wanted to get it on that action. Real that estate sounds, puzzles. Real estate puzzles. Um, you know, putting together the pieces every Monday and Thursday when we meet somebody. Oof. I got to tell you, that is that tickles a problem solving sort of part of me that mm-hmm. I I love mm-hmm. because at its core, real estate is about use case. And about fitting the right people with the right land, exactly. with the right house on the right land, or the right buyer and the right seller at the right time. Mm-hmm. And it's a solution-driven business. It is. It's mm-hmm. very Tetris or Sudoku or something, and I, I really, Ooh, really like things. it. Yes, love that. Yeah. Um, and I hope that we get more towards that and away from the over-commoditization, you know, where the market's just so saturated with individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we talked recently um, with someone about elevating minimum standards and how important that is at the association level and at the brokerage level. And so, yeah, there's a lot of change in the wind. And I'm always a proponent that, no, it's not government. It's not rules. It's not associations. It's private champions sort of going forth and saying, I'm building something beautiful. Let's attract people into it mm-hmm. and then have others just straight up copy us. And then we'll all benefit from the fact that we're all going the right direction. Exactly. I'm really excited about this market. I'm excited about, you know, the market share grab. Yeah. It's going to happen. I think people are going to be jumping out of the business. You're not going to have the people who are doing it 
you know, part-time and can just throw their sister's house on the market and it sells in 24 hours. I don't know when people are going to be listening to this. And so I don't know what the market is going to be when you're listening here. But I, I do know that there are little ups and little downs every day, regardless of mm -hmm. the rates, regardless of the temperature. And the only thing that I've seen that's constant is change mm -hmm. and innovation. Mm -hmm. And change is what you think is affecting you or like assaulting you. And innovation is somewhere between sword and shield. Mm -hmm. It is both a defense against change. It's an offense to create change. And so I tend to, when I'm in my sort of hardest moments of trying to figure out what's going on, I fall back on innovation. And uh, sometimes I get sparks for innovation from conversations like mm. these. Mm. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. This yeah. has been really lovely. All right, everyone. We have laid down the gold nuggets, so I hope you were collecting along the way. I'm Michael Conrad, and this is the Business of Homes podcast. I hope that you will smash the subscribe button and keep listening because we're going to keep bringing you stories about the best entrepreneur and business side of real estate here in Middle Tennessee. We'll see you next time. Hey everyone, Jake again, director for the Business of Homes podcast. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. A huge thank you to Katie Morell for being a part of the podcast. Go follow her on Instagram at Katie Jane Morell and let her know how much you enjoyed their story. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred listening platform and make sure to follow us on Instagram as well at the Business of Homes pod. Do you have any feedback or want to suggest someone for the show? Email us at thebusinessofhomespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you soon.